0: Welcome to the Hopkins Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeski with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Joining us this week is Dr. Clara Humston. Dr. Humston is an assistant professor in mental health at the University of York and honorary research fellow at the Institute of Mental Health, University of Birmingham, both in the United Kingdom. Her research interests and experience span from psychopharmacology to cognitive neuropsychiatry to phenomenological psychopathology. She is a strong proponent of inter- and multidisciplinary approaches and values the importance of multiple lines of scientific inquiry in mental health research. Dr. Humpson's latest paper, Isolated by Oneself, Ontologically Impossible Experiences in Schizophrenia, was published in the latest issue of the journal Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology. She joined us to discuss the theories of her research and its practical implications. Thank you so much for joining us today, Clara. I'm so looking forward to talking to you. Thank you. The first question uh, we like to ask all of our guests is, can you tell us what your academic origin story is? How did you come to study psychology and focus on schizophrenia specifically?
1: So it's, it's a bit of a long-winded story because when I was very young, I think about secondary school or kind of high school age or doing university applications, that kind of age, I uh, started to wonder about the kind of nature of self and reality, kind of the uh, truthfulness or the lack thereof of our own thoughts. How do we become certain that uh, our thoughts, the thoughts we think every day in our heads are actually ours? And it became a kind of a morbid fascination <laughs> in the sense that uh, I was tirelessly looking into kind of different psychological disorders. And uh, at the time as well, I was doing what is called A-level psychology. So it's like a senior kind of high school equivalent mm-hmm. course in psychology. And we learned a lot about kind of schizophrenia, depression as well, anxiety disorders. And none of it kind of stood out to me as much as the certain symptoms in schizophrenia did. So also combined with the fact that at the time I was very keen to look into this further, uh, thinking, thinking to myself, really, how, how do I know this thought is mine? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> really bizarre, and almost obsessive kind of fascination with the agency and ownership of thought. Mm. And uh, then I looked up the uh, treatment for schizophrenia and related psychosis. And that was even more fascinating, because at the time, I'm still a massive chemistry nut. <laughs> so I was fascinated by chemistry, by pharmacology, neurochemistry, different kind of energy pathways. Mm-hmm. So my first kind of training opportunity arise or kind of when I was just after my high school to do uh, pharmacology at the University of Bristol, mm-hmm. Th- that, that institution was very focused on kind of psychopharmacology and psychiatric medications and i enjoyed it and i thought "Hmm, drugs are not the only answer clearly Mm. i mean medications are exceptionally effective but they're not the beyond also i thought i want to look into a bit more in the psychiatric side kind of research methodology that's what i drove me to do a master's degree in psychiatric research methods mm. at the Institute of Psychiatry at King's College London. So that gave me a more kind of rounded un- understanding. Mm. And at the same time, my fascination about agency ownership and self and thoughts, that that was still there all this way after my pharmacology training and my master's. So I thought I'd, I'd like to actually work with people who are affected by psychosis and schizophrenia. And that's what I did for my PhD, which was a project on the multiple multiple studies, but which was focused on kind of first episode psychosis and the uh, individuals' experiences and their learning and memory mechanisms. So it's been well, I'd say it's been Ten years since I graduated from my pharmacology degree, mm. and since then I think I'm still fascinated about <laughs> <laughs> the uh, agency and of thought. I can't, with any confidence, say that that understanding or the lack of understanding has kind of moved me forwards in the sense of. I, I know what it is now. I can't say that. Mm, right. Uh, that's, and that is why, partially at least, I wrote a paper in the PPP. Mm-hmm. And that's also why I'm still still <laughs> really, really keen to learn more about why we are so certain, why we mm-hmm. just take everything for granted. Why, why do most people never, ever wonder, doubt, question what they're thinking is yours is theirs
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah so that's a bit of a long story but no it, it's a great
0: story and I would venture to say I mean I, I think that it's 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 really a wonderful thing that after 10 years you're still so curious and still so like still really into the subject matter you know some people get sort of burnt out on, no, <laughs> on whatever I- they is they want to study and you seem to be just just as enthralled as you were in, in high school
1: yeah I was must be must be about 16 17 years old when this all started so yeah and it's yeah. it really
0: is kind of an unanswerable question so I think that that also just leads it to be never it's never like you it's, close the book and you say okay I'm done now I've learned no, all to you learn can't. yeah yeah you can't. yeah
1: yeah absolutely
0: That's fantastic. So bringing us to your paper in PPP, which is titled isolated by oneself, ontologically impossible experiences in schizophrenia. It it explores ways that clinicians perceive the experiences of those with schizophrenia for our listeners who might not have a deep understanding of some of the psychological concepts that you discuss. Can you help us understand what ontologically impossible experiences are?
1: So, I'll start with an example. So, for example, some patients uh, with schizophrenia would report to their clinician that things like quite concretized, I would call them delusions, but that's okay. up to debate. Mm. I, I, I <laughs> slight detour is that I I don't necessarily think that all delusions are beliefs, mm they can just be thoughts or experiences or even carry some sort of semi-sensory quality as well. I've written about this too. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I term delusions are more of the kind of thinking or thoughts or experiences, sometimes beliefs, that are are at odds with what everybody else Mm. seems to be true. Mm -hmm. So it is a kind of interpersonal and... uh, intentional kind of disconnect Mm. between what for example a patient with schizophrenia perceives to be true Mm -hmm. or unreal and what society everybody else perceives to be real Mm -hmm. so an ontologically possible experience is is, for example the thought or the experience that the whole planet earth is contained within my heart Or when I blink my eye, the earth is going to explode. Or when I blink my eye, I can feel some sort of expansion of dimensions around me. Mm. So in summary, they're the kind of experiences that defy commonsensical logic Mm -hmm. and defy corporeality, temporality, and physicality. Mm. So they directly go against the laws of physics. Oh, okay, okay. That's what what is meant by ontologically impossible, I there's no way anything like that would ever exist in a commonsensical and sort of culturally,
0: socially accepted world. Okay, so it's not just that if you have someone having that experience and another person who isn't, it isn't something as simple as like saying, I have a headache. You can't see that headache, but I'm experiencing it. And that makes it real. It's really a, a sort of a bigger leap to it's a bigger what, leap. what I'm experiencing. I can't even describe to you like it. Doesn't, That's right. Okay. Okay. That makes That's sense. That's
1: right. It can't, can't be described.
0: Well, I, I tried to describe <laughs> <laughs> it. Right. Well, you just did. You just did very well, but <laughs> I, I, I understand what you're the difference. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah. There's a difference. It's not like the kind of what's called kind of the Veil perception where ah. another person's perspective is always distant and mm-hmm. somehow removed from one's own.
0: Right, right it's more right. of a
1: case that whatever it is, it's just not possible by mm-hmm. any means mm-hmm. to, to to be anywhere
0: near what we perceive as reality. Got it, got it. Because even if you can't see my headache, you've had a headache and you know what that is. Yeah, and and you know headaches
1: are actual symptoms. They exist. They exist. Mm It will be like saying my headache, I have headaches because my brain has been replaced by a radio. Okay,
0: there you go. That's not something I can can understand. You
1: can't understand that. and You can't necessarily feel it even Mm -hmm. if you had headaches.
0: Right. Right. You can
1: imagine a headache. You can perhaps potentially emphasize with it if you had it before. Right. But you can't imagine
0: what it's like to have a radio in your head. Right, exactly. I, I think that it, really helps. That really helps. That example really helps. Thank you. I
1: think a lot of the patients mean it physically as well.
0: Mm. It's
1: not an analogy. It's not thinking mm. that I hear voices, for example, therefore it sounds as if there is a radio in my head. It's very... Right.
0: There is a radio. Uh, in my head. Yeah, mm-hmm. there
1: is a radio in my head. My brain has been replaced by a radio.
0: You note in your paper that the act of observing and diagnosing an experience by a clinician by making the patient aware of it reveals the impossibility of their experience, which in turn erodes the experience, which I thought was just such an interesting concept. And again, I was trying to sort of imagine this as an example in my own life and frame it in a way that I can understand in my experience. So the the way I sort of started to think about it was if you were sitting in an orchestra performance and someone Mm -hmm. said, just count the beats, like don't listen to the instruments, just count the beats and how that would sort of suck you away from what's actually happening and the joy and the emotion of the experience and, and by box it in is that like an accurate metaphor or in terms of the way the observation and stating of the of the symptoms sort of completely shifts and can sometimes even um like you said erode or make or 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 negate the symptoms to to that to the person suffering from them i think he's half
1: of the story what you okay i think it's twofold because for example if you think of kind of intensively focusing on one thing and ignore the rest. Mm -hmm. I count the beats and ignore the whole orchestra. Mm -hmm. And that is one way of kind of interpreting the act, the very act of observation on Mm -hmm. your own understanding on another person's experience. Okay. Because I think what I meant was that... uh, The first kind of aspect is the personal or interpersonal aspects of the clinician talking to the patient and the patient reporting symptoms, whatever they mean, Mm -hmm. back to the clinician. And then there's a wider angle of what is socially and culturally acceptable. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if a patient said, a planet Earth exists within my stomach or my heart or my brain by just fixating on this particular symptom or experience or report. First thing that would do is that the clinician in most cases would just say that's a delusional belief. It doesn't happen, just simply it's ontologically impossible. It can't possibly be true. And then the patient would say, I feel it in my stomach, it's very real to me. It's it's absolutely 100% real. And so that, by erosion of experience, that kind of comes from the friction between two perspectives. Mm. Only one is actually true. Mm. I've argued time and time again that not just patients with schizophrenia, anyone, can make mistakes about what is true in terms mm. of true social reality. Mm-hmm. I said I didn't say personal reality, I said social reality. But nobody can make errors or mistakes about what is real to the person. Very good point. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So everything we experience are real to us.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But by someone else saying oh, I know it's real, but it's only real to you, mm-hmm. as I wrote in my paper as well, mm-hmm. that actually highlights the fact that it's not real to the clinician. It's not real to everybody else in the whole world apart from you. Mm-hmm. And to that, and it's very isolating. Mm. It's very kind of alienating to the patient because I think the clinician thinks thinks that they are trying to help the patient by uh, trying to understand what they are experiencing by saying, I know it's very frightening. I know it's
0: very real, but only to you." Right. Right. Yeah. And I'm really glad you said that. That was actually my next question because I really, the, I think the part of your paper that struck me the most was that part where you sort mm-hmm. of quoted the clinician saying, and I could hear the, you know, the therapist in my head voice, yeah. <laughs> like, I, I know it's real to you. And this it's very sort of, you know, patronizing tone, it's very um, but And you, and you noted in your paper that comments like that, like you just said, exacerbate their solitude and that this was the part I, I, I was really struck by clinicians will never understand because striving to understand is the wrong goal. Um, so I just was wondering if you could speak more on that, like, so what, what is the goal? Because I, I, like you said, I think when, so when a clinician says that they think they're being empathetic. Hmm. but like you just stated it's all it's doing is 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 driving that wedge between experience a and experience b more like i know yeah. it's real to you does not make that person feel better so can you speak more to that like what would the goal what what would you propose the goal is then oh gosh that's a big question <laughs> I think. can you explain that
1: in five minutes oh, no. Oh, no probably okay. 50
0: hours <laughs>
1: right. but no, but, i mean uh, i think it depends on the person right. I'm, right. I'm a massive fan of Personalized and individual-based care mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. treatment, because for each person affected with schizophrenia or other psychosis or even mental illnesses, what this what this particular person wants in life is again different, if not the opposite to someone else. For example, one person might think that my feelings of earth existing in my stomach. Are a direct result of dopamine dysfunction. Mm-hmm. Another person might think is a mystical experience. And I don't, I quite like this feeling of kind of encompassing the earth, this kind of feeling at one with the universe, that type of feeling. Whereas another person might be heavily distressed and okay, might yeah. do something risky to get earth out of themselves, that right. kind of very harmful behavior as well. So I think the goal would really, I hope it's not a cop-out answer, (laughs) but I think really the goal of any sort of therapeutic alliance would depend on exclusively the patient or the client. Mm. To achieve this sort of mutual understanding is not the only goal. Obviously, sometimes in people with less, say less bizarre, less, Ontologically impossible feelings, like things like feeling that I'm being persecuted or someone is following me or somebody's mm-hmm. spying at my Twitter feeds or that type of thing. That is more ontologically possible if you want to flip it on its head. Right. Because sometimes people do that type of thing or I'm mm-hmm. being stalked or, you mm-hmm. know, nasty things people do. But in that sense, you can have a mutual understanding. Right. For example, the therapist might have even had a similar experience themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when it comes to, oh, if I can talk about it a bit more, is the uh, whole concept of schizophrenia. In my mind, I think it's one of my responses to one of the uh, commentaries on this particular paper. Mm-hmm. I said, I think the whole concept of schizophrenia has been narrowed and not broadened. Mm. It's just my own view because if you think about the essence, if you use it loosely, the essence of schizophrenia to me is paradox. Mm. It's ontological impossibility, but things that are ontologically impossible, but they are possible within the patient's mind. Okay. And then the patient's mind is still a part of the wider world, this reality. Right. So if you can think about such experiences existing in a human mind, then they must be real, they must be true as well, because the human mind is part of us. As I say, consciousness, well, it's getting grand now, consciousness, <laughs> consciousness kind of exists within the world, but it's also our world. Right. Because mm-hmm. you can't perceive anything without being conscious. Right. That's what, that's what I mean. It's sort of like uh, I also use the Mobius strip analogy in my mm. paper yes, is infinity is going back and forth, back and forth. Coming back to the goal I think if there had to be one universal goal is that if the patient is willing and accepting of such a solution, I call it solution, it's not really for everyone is to, as I said in my paper, to just cut the uh, strip mobius strip cut a ribbon from an external point of view even just temporarily Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that the patient can be i say empowered and be shown the way they could walk on rather than just being told that this is my reality and that's yours you have to conform to societal reality right your personal reality i know it's real to you by the way but it doesn't count
0: Right. right Right. I think
1: that's to have the choice of what kind of life I'm to lead, mm-hmm, to have mm-hmm. the optional, some sort of pathway where you can choose willingly to mm-hmm. walk along this side or the other side, knowing both would be accepting of you. Mm-hmm. I think that's really
0: empowering. Yeah, without the judgment and value put Yeah. On one versus the other. Right, right.
1: Obviously, that's, you have yeah. to emphasize that this this is all a bit idealistic because <laughs> right because because sometimes there are risks mm-hmm. dangers and questionable behaviors involved in major mental illnesses mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so as long as there's no direct kind of threat to yourself or to other people right, right, right. no no risk to life or to property or any sort of Illegal criminal kind of aspect of forensic aspect of this kind of it's rare, obviously. I'm not Mm -hmm. at all saying that it's an inevitable consequence, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. sometimes, sometimes, but that that would be the the difference between that'd be the difference, yeah. Someone who who
0: is choosing versus someone whose whose behaviors or actions are are harming themselves or other people.
1: That's right, yeah. As long as the latter is not present or at least can be managed, yeah, I think. Who are we to judge? Exactly. Yeah, yeah,
0: I'm I'm intrigued by that, and you also had noted in your paper that, um, and again, just sort of tying into what you just said, that that clinicians and patients might be better served by not trying to remove the experiences entirely, but aiming for, uh, temporarily removing those experiences. And I was curious about that in terms of sort of tangibly how that how that happens. Is that something mm-hmm. with like medication that's happening over every once in a while, or t- how does one temporarily remove um, these experiences? That is more theoretical than actually. Okay, I was going to say, and, and does it
1: even exist? Does that happen now? I or is think that it like can a... happen. I think it okay. really can happen with, especially in the first episode of psychosis, mm-hmm. which may or may not lead to a diagnosis of schizophrenia. Okay. By using some kind of relatively, relatively, again, depends on the person because each right. person's biology, physiology, chemistry are all different. Right, right. So, for example, low dose antipsychotics can mm-hmm. just give this individual a moment of clarity. Okay. And then that character risk carries a risk by itself in the sense that because the societal reality is still very judgmental, mm-hmm. by realizing that, oh, for the last, I don't know, two months, three months, half a year, I've been living a lie, I've been, I've been living in this. It just made some sort of delusional dreamland i just came to the realization that none of it was actually real mm. which it was but because things like by what clinicians say like uh i know it's real but it's not real anywhere else that there's actually the diagnosis of post schizophrenia depression as well oh interesting at least in the ICD, I think, I'm not sure about the latest version, as far as I know, hmm. at least once has been a diagnosis of kind of post schizophrenia depression. And that gaining of insights, which mm-hmm. I wrote in my paper as well, that some clinicians are very keen to impose on the patient, right? for right. them to realize, or snap out of it, and think, oh, yeah, I can reintegrate into the wider social, re- social reality now. Mm-hmm. Whereas it can do more harm than good because mm. if you're plunged into the social reality or just picked up from your own and just dumped in the community without any follow-up care, which happens, and then just left to your own devices, that's incredibly kind of alienating and just isolating for the individual as well. Right. Because they have no no other option. Mm. But to live like a normal human being, quote mm. unquote. Yeah. Air quotes. <laughs> <laughs> Air quotes. Right. But uh, yeah, so I would say it's more kind of insight for the stages after florid psychosis mm. that can carry risk of suicide, mm-hmm. thoughts, even behaviors, attempts, even completed suicide sometimes because. Mm-hmm. The individual is so far removed—not temporarily removed, mm-hmm. but so far removed from their own reality—and they have no choice. Because sometimes, as, as I was just saying earlier, if you have, if you can have the choice of mm-hmm. staying in my reality or gradually merging towards the social shared reality, then that's better. At least I made this decision. Mm-hmm rather than being dumped in as I said before in a social reality without any way back
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: so again I think I would like to take an individualized approach right yeah focus on the individual what that particular person wants at
0: this moment in life that makes sense and I and I'm I'm struck by what you said about sort of the post-schizophrenic experience you know and how there would be such a deep sense of mourning if someone it you is. know was set, like had was perfectly fine where they were and then were just told actually I mean it's almost like the Matrix it's like actually no this is not no right, actually and no, no that yeah yeah that's really that's giving me a lot to think about
1: I mean I don't know if you're familiar with some uh, this is shameless self advertisement right? <laughs> that's okay that's All what we're that. here for. <laughs> <laughs> My uh, brilliant PhD student, Rosa and myself, and Mm -hmm. uh, Professor Matthew Broome, wrote this paper in the BJ Psych Bulletin last year, I think. It's called Finding Meaning in Disorder. Mm. And because Rosa is a consultant psychiatrist in the National Health Service, and she has encountered a lot of kind of acutely psychotic first episode individuals. And one of them said he was the happiest person in the world in in his delusional state. Mm. And then after the clinical encounter he wasn't
0: the happiest person in the world anymore right right not he was not better off before no, he you know better do, off. No, do no harm wasn't quite followed right no no it's yeah. not
1: Rosa's fault because oh no no I wasn't it, implying that I'm just saying no.
0: like you said it's like the veil is lifted and yeah. then there's like a there's like a reckoning there's a reckoning
1: it's a reckoning it's a sharp kind of unrelenting undeniable reckoning that
0: impacts your whole human being yeah. yeah yeah there's no escape from that no no what um so where where what are you researching now what's next for you do you have any any um research that's happening that you'd like to share with us
1: yeah of course cool. so i just i've been kind of nominated by my institution for uh, what what is called the springboard award which oh. is for newly kind of appointed lecturers assistant professors in the field of biomedical science okay so for this one it's only a two-year relatively short ground i'm applying for a study of non-clinical hallucinations and self-experiences in relation to how we can potentially change or manipulate or influence the feelings of disembodiment Mm. in individuals who are quite prone to hallucinations and senses of loss of self or lack of coherence by using brain stimulation.
0: Interesting.
1: And also trying to figure out what makes an individual non-clinical and what pushes the individual over the line into first episode Ah. psychosis, that type of differentiation between clinical presentation and clinical outcome. So that's one thing. Another thing, I recently recently applied for a fellowship where I would look into the kind of relationships between cognitive intrusions that may or may not in an individual encompass ontologically impossible experiences, for example, thought insertion, command hallucinations, that kind of experiences, and how they might affect the individual to such a degree that they think about suicide and Mm. yeah, so by using experience sampling method, so we would have a snapshot or some sort of I say monitoring, it's a bit of a nasty word, kind of a follow-up uh, capture of the daily fluctuations in cognitive inclusions and suicidal oh. thoughts. Okay. That's the two projects I'm currently uh, getting, trying to get funding on. Okay. And uh, other research, I think I have another paper that is a even matter paper all about the kind of paradoxes in schizophrenia mm. i actually just of yesterday my brilliant PhD student Rosa published a paper on delusional experiences uh, across kind of multiple studies so it's called uh, systematic review and qualitative evidence synthesis mm-hmm. it, that was actually published in the Lancet Psychiatry and that's received oh, nice. a lot of Really, really positive feedback.
0: Yeah, I'm very proud of Rosa. That's fantastic. Congratulations to Rosa. Thank you. Yeah, yes, yeah, good. And to you as her advisor. <laughs> yes, I'm one of the senior authors. I mean, I think. Well thank you so much Clara for for talking to us today. This has been such an interesting and thought-provoking conversation and one that I know I will I will be sort of pondering and and Aww. thinking about in my own in my own mind and life. So I I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today and best of luck with the rest of your research. Thank you
1: very much. Let's keep in touch.
0: This podcast is a production of Hopkins Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu.